Let's talk about your 84-year-old man. Sure. So this gentleman, uh, long-standing monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance. He was diagnosed around 2010. And he's one of these salt-of-the-earth kind of guys who would come in, and I would talk to him about getting a bone marrow biopsy, and he would say, he'd look me in the eye and say, Dr. Rupard, I've lived a good life. I feel good. I don't want to change anything. I want to stick with the plan, so I really don't want to undergo a biopsy right now. Of course, he'd also read about the procedure and feared that it would be terribly painful. Ultimately, just to give you an idea, his SPEP around the time that he declined his last bone marrow biopsy was in May of 2013. He had a 3.0 gram per deciliter M spike. And his skeletal survey was negative for lytic lesions. Calcium and creatinine were normal. But he was admitted to the hospital later this year with fatigue and found to have pancytopenia with a white blood cell count of 3.9, hemoglobin 8.9, platelets of 102,000. And on retesting, his M-spike had increased to 3.2 grams per deciliter. The bone marrow biopsy was 90% cellular, plasma cells 80% of his cellularity, and myeloma fish demonstrated a gain of 1Q21. So after some discussion back and forth and obtaining a second opinion, he finally agreed to treatment. He agreed with me in December 2013 that kind of reluctantly that he would allow me to treat him after the holidays. So he was coming in today for his first visit before getting treatment. What's his life home situation? Does he have a spouse? Who does he live with? Yeah, his spouse was with him today, and they live together. He's 84, but he doesn't look, although he certainly has multiple medical problems, he doesn't look like you know a guy who's 84 and kind of on his way out. He actually looks like a fairly robust 84. And what kind of treatment had you been thinking about for him? Either dexamethasone and lenalidomide or dexamethasone and bortezomib. One of those two, and it was one of the discussions that I wanted to have with Dr. Gertz today. So what were your thoughts, Maury? So here you have an 84-year-old with very slow evolution of disease out of a monoclonal gammopathy whose principal problem is he's anemic, transfusion-dependent. And of course, now we have to rethink our goals. This is not a guy where, in the back of my mind, molecular complete remission is a very big deal for me. I'd like his hemoglobin to be above 7. That's what I'm looking for. And this is a patient who I think, let's say, doesn't have a high trust level in medicine. He's suspicious. I don't want this test. And let's keep putting off the treatment. So I need to be very, very sure when I treat him, he doesn't get bad side effects. Because if he does, he's walking away. And that subverts anything we tried to do. And the options for him are legion. So if this patient was in Spain, he'd get prednisone bortezomib. If he's in Italy, he's getting prednisone thalidomide. Ash had a plenary session that was presented by the IFM. It was a three-arm study that looked at prednisone thalidomide. That was, quote, their standard for elderly. And compared it to lenalidomide dex for 18 cycles and lenalidomide dex to progression. In other words, so there was maintenance, basically. And the prednisone thalidomide was statistically significantly inferior, both in progression-free survival, overall survival, and hematologic toxicity. So, and it was 1,600 patients on the trial, suggesting that for the elderly, lenalidomide dex is a very, very good choice. There's no question that bortezomib dex is also a good choice, but in this patient, 
I'd probably start light and work my way up to be sure I didn't drive them away with, I was feeling okay, and once I started coming to see you, everything went south. We have patients like that. Yeah, I think that's one of the big issues here. You know, I make the joke frequently that, you know, when I'm 80 years old and my wife drags me to the internist and he says, okay, here are the 10 medications you need to be on. I'm going to tell him, pick your top three, because that's all I'm taking. And, <laughs> and this is one of those, I think we all, all doctors kind of feel that way because we see the havoc that medications can wreak on patients. And this is exactly how this guy is. Dr. Gertz has absolutely nailed it. If I make this guy significantly uncomfortable, then he's not coming back to see me. So I think my choice of initial therapy really does matter in that sense if I want to have a real long-term impact on this guy's life. I had one other question for Dr. Gertz about bortezomib. At the Mayo Clinic, do you put all of your bortezomib patients on antiviral therapy? Yeah, we do. There are three situations where the herpes zoster prevalence is so high that it's shocking. And so it's clearly post-stem cell transplant, post-bortezomib, but I also would have to say that I've seen now whopping herpes zoster after oral proteasome inhibitors, so all proteasome inhibitors, IV, oral Bortezomib, carfilzomib, iaximib, aprozomib, you need to have them prophylaxed against herpes zoster. And once we discontinue the bortezomib, how long do you keep them on it for? Well, that's arbitrary. We do three months, but really no one knows what it takes for T-cell recovery to occur, which of course is really protecting them against the zoster. No one knows. After a stem cell transplant, we continue for a year. We used to stop it at day 100, and then we saw people getting herpes zoster at five months. Going back to the trial that you were talking about that was presented at ASH, what was seen in the two arms with the lenalidomide dex, you know, stopping it as opposed to continuing until progression? So from a relapse-free survival standpoint in the abstract, it was clearly longer with the len dex continuous. But when they did the overall survival analysis, they compared MPT to the two arms. They didn't compare the two RD arms to each other. So there is a relapse-free survival advantage for the RD, the lenalidomide dex. It's unclear as yet, and again, I've seen one abstract presentation, whether there will be a survival difference between the two. And one of the problems with the trial, as it is so often, is that treatment at relapse is not pre-specified. In other words, you relapse, you go off trial. And then it's dealer's choice what you get. So if you had someone on lenalidomide dex for 18 months and you stopped it and two years later they relapsed, you'd put them back on lenalidomide dex. That would be the way to really understand whether continuous versus just salvage is better. The problem is that's not necessarily what they get. You don't know what fraction of those patients will be able to get lenalidomide in France and how many will get MPV or MPT. You just don't know. One other question. You used the term light when you were talking there before, Maureen. I was flashing on the so-called RVD light regimen that's being piloted in various locations. What are your thoughts about this? And, you know, you take the same patient, but with a very, very proactive attitude. Do you ever use that type of approach? Absolutely. And there's no question that there's a role for that. Again, it has to do with, think of how we evolve these trials. We start them in phase one, and what do we care about? 
the maximum tolerated dose. We just want to give as much as we can until two people out of six develop a grade three or four toxicity and say, okay, we'll scale back one. Well, you know, that's not necessarily the minimally effective dose. We may be able to get away with less toxic therapy for longer periods of times, but we're locked into a certain specific trial design that with refractory relapse patient, we want to give as much drug as we possibly can because we don't want to miss an effect or a benefit due to underdosing. So we tend to go and push it to its limits. That doesn't always serve every patient subpopulation.